I have some exhibits today. So my first exhibit is this. You've seen these before. They're in every week. Um, I'm trying to develop a new habit. A couple of uh, what? A couple of months ago, uh, um, Lisa and um, uh, Kurt began using these questions for the teenage uh, Sunday school class, and um, they wanted to look at them before they were before they showed up here on Sundays. And so I was supposed to send them to them each week so they have a chance to look at them. And I'm batting about what 20, 200 something like that maybe. So I've been very bad, and I'm trying to develop a habit because I know that I will never do this if I have to think about it. Right now it's in the zone where you have to think about it. But I want it to become a habit. Like, for example, when you put your shoes on in the morning, do you put on the left shoe first or the right shoe? Right? Who knows, right? You just do it. You don't think about it. It just happens, right? There's a lot of things like that that are habits. Uh, Probably uh, estimates of as many as 40% of our decisions are habitual, where we don't even have to think about them. They, they were a decision once, but now they're just a routine we go through. And um, uh, I found this book a couple of years ago, two years ago, something like that. I read it, and I said, wow, this is awesome. You know, if I can leverage this, then I can get the same thing that makes me successfully tie my shoes. I could use it in all kinds of areas of my life, so that's really cool. And I really recommend this. If you have things you're trying to get better at, things you'd like to do more habitually, then I recommend this book. It's Charles Duhigg, and it's got all the current science and kind of all the things that are um, that people know about habit formation. And um, I just recommend it enormously. It's the kind of book, as soon as I read it, um, I, I read it from the library, and then I got it on my Kindle because I wanted to refer back to it. And then I said, you know who needs this? My kids need this book. And so I got a copy from my son, and um, I'll get one for my daughter soon um, when she quits scowling when I bring it up. So um, that, that'll, come, that'll come later maybe. But um, it's the kind of book I just want everybody to know it, it, it exists because, because um, it will convince you and then you'll try it and you'll be even more convinced. So it's a great book and I recommend it a lot. Um, but in it, there is a section in the book that is, um, that is uh, about systems. And when an organization does something habitually, instead of calling it a habit, uh, the, the author calls it a system. He says you have a system to do that. that. That it's not something you have to stop and think about any more than people have to stop and figure out, now wait a minute, should I use my left foot this morning or my right foot when I'm tying my shoes, right? You just kind of, you just do it. So the idea is organizations can benefit from from systems as well. And that's that's what the title for uh, today's message comes from. So big lead up, but there's a reason, and I'll get back to it, the, 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 the reason basically is this. What I was going to title my message was Disciplined Growth. Um, and, and I'll come back to the discipline part because that's really where the systems come in. But I know that growth is, is a, uh, a sensitive topic in the church. And um, there's a lot of reasons for that. But just first of all, as a show of hands, who here has been part of a church that has experienced rapid growth? Okay, so two people, was that it? Okay, so by rapid, just to make sure we're clear, to me, rapid growth means for a sustained period of time, uh, the church grew faster than the, the surrounding community. To me, that's rapid growth. You're actually growing faster than the community around you. Now, there's also slow growth where the church is growing, but not as fast as the community. So, the, you know, for example, Anchorage has doubled in size in the last 40 years, um, but... Uh, 
if your church hasn't has has increased by one and a half times, it may have felt like growth, but it was relatively slow compared to the the community as a whole. Um, okay, how many of you have not experienced growth in your church? There's two other options. Let me show you them. So one of them is plateauing. People talk about a church has plateaued when it just stays the same size over a long period of time, regardless what's going on in the community. That's a plateaued church. And then the last one is a decline. And I think this is what most, uh, I think 90%, I forget the numbers, but a huge, a huge percent of mainline churches find themselves actually in this position, the decline. So relative to the community or not, just in terms of absolute numbers, uh, a, a huge proportion of mainline churches, the Methodists and Presbyterians included, are in this position. The churches are actually shrinking. So one of the problems we have when we discuss growth is very few of us actually have experienced it as a member of a church. We may have visited a church. We may have gone to a church and said, ick, you know, not for me. This is not my thing. But very few of us have actually experienced it um, from the inside as a church member. So that's one reason it's difficult. But we can't ignore it either because uh, we're in this conversation We've since Easter We've been thinking about, we've been thinking about the church because, uh, at Easter, Jesus, Jesus rose from, from the, the dead and he gave his disciples a commission. He said, go and be my witnesses. He says, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now it's true. Jesus never said anything about growing a church, but he did say, you will be my witnesses. And what we've discovered is that the things that the church did to carry out that commission for the past 2,000 years or most of the past 2,000 years aren't working anymore. The things the church is doing uh, today, if they're the same things the church was doing 100 years ago, they're probably not very effective. And that's what we see. The country as a whole, North America, Canada, and and uh, the U.S. are both de-Christianizing. So the proportion of people who are Christians are actually smaller today than um, 10 or 20 or 40 years ago. So that's the situation the church finds itself in. But fortunately, we don't have to hire an expert to come in and tell us how to do it better because there's actually an example of a church that was in a situation much like ours and they figured out what to do in that situation. And that is the early church, the church that we see in the book of Acts. So that's what we're doing over the next couple of weeks. We're looking at the example of the church in the book of Acts. And as soon as you start down that path, what keeps hitting you between the eyes is the church was growing. In the book of Acts, in chapter 1, there's about 120 disciples of Jesus. In chapter 2, there's 3,000 disciples. In chapter 4, there's 5,000 disciples. In chapter 5, it's like Luke just abandons trying to keep a count, and he simply says there's more and more. And then in chapter 6, which we just heard, he says the number of disciples was increasing. This is all through the book of Acts, that what the church is doing is resulting in greater and greater numbers of disciples. And so, on the one hand, Jesus never told the church you should grow. But on the other hand, what we see when we look at a church that's trying to figure out how to be effective at carrying out that commission, what we see is that they grow. So, there seems to be something about a healthy church that is that is ministering in its context effectively that leads to church growth. And I think that's that's that makes sense, right? If you're excited about something, if there's something that really gets you thinking, then you're probably going to tell other people about it. Okay, I just did. Okay, you do this. Something something excites you. Something makes you think, I only wish my son knew about this, or if only my children knew about this thing, right? That's just natural. People do that. 
But beyond that, another reason that churches grow, if, if you think about evangelism, and I know most of us don't, but, but Jesus said, if you are convinced that I have been raised from the dead, then go and tell people. That's really what the church has been called to do 2,000 years ago, and Jesus has never retracted that. He says, when you become convinced that I'm alive, then go and tell people. And sometimes it's just because it just all makes sense. You know, like like me reading this book and trying out some things, um, I just said, this really makes sense. And sometimes it's an intellectual thing, but a lot of the time, what convinces us ultimately is we say, you know what, that's not just me doing that. That's the power of God at work in me. That, that Jesus must be alive because he has connected me back to God and I am experiencing God's power in my life. I have entered the kingdom of God that Jesus said was near. I actually have gotten a taste of what he meant by that and I'm experiencing that in my life. And so if that's true, if that's if that describes you, chances are you're not the only one who's noticed it. Chances are there are people around you who have noticed it too. And and at some point or another they will probably look at you and say What's up with that? Why are you different? You know, the boss just said this and everybody else in the room groaned and you didn't. Why? Why is that? You know, how come your marriage is different than my marriage? People will ask you those sorts of questions. And when you do, you say, I'm convinced that Jesus Christ is alive and at work in my life, right? That's really all evangelism is. When somebody says, why are you different? To say, because I'm convinced that Jesus is working in my life. And if you do, they will say, well, yeah, but what about evolution? And what about, what about, um, gay marriage? And, and what you can say then is you can say, look, I don't have it all figured out. You asked a question. You asked me, how come I'm different? I'm telling you, I'm convinced that Jesus is alive and at work in my life. And they say, but yeah, but, but, but. And you say, look, just come and see. So that's evangelism, right? That's evangelism 101. And when they come and see, churches grow. So it just makes sense that churches grow. Right? That's, that's what we would expect if people are actually doing what Jesus called them to do. So on the one hand, there's nothing surprising about growth, but we know it comes with pain. And I, I trust me, I know about it, um, but I hear about it too. I probably, I don't know, a large fraction of the people sitting around you have told me they don't want to be part of a megachurch. There's a reason people gravitate toward churches this size. They don't want to be part of a megachurch. Well, I have some statistics. First of all, just to, just to clarify what what our terms are. What is a megachurch? Unfortunately, there's two definitions of megachurch. One is a church of a thousand. One is a church of two thousand. So we don't qualify. Um, now, two percent of all churches in North America are megachurches. So not many churches. One in fifty. But about one in eleven churchgoers belong to megachurches because they're big churches, right? That just makes sense. They're big churches, so more than two percent belong to them. About about nine percent of adult attenders belong to megachurches. Our size churches is in a group that they call churches of a hundred and smaller. Forty-one percent of churchgoers in America, adult churchgoers in America, go to churches this size, and about sixty percent of churches are this size, so a hundred and smaller. So we're actually very typical of the the majority, more than the majority, a supermajority. Um, we we could we could overwrite a veto. Um, the 60% of us um, who are this size church, we could overwrite a veto uh, because this is the typical size of a church. So that's that's the statistic. But um, if you're afraid of becoming a mega church, first of all, besides uh, needing a reality check, 
Um, I want to give you some information about, about megachurches that may surprise you. Um, it turns out megachurches don't like being in megachurches either. And one of the trends, there's, a, there's an organization called Lifeway. They measure churches and so forth. And they found that the trend for the last several years has been towards smaller worship centers. And the reason for that is people used to build a big church. They, they expected 500 people to be part of their church. Um, you know, they're 300 now, but they're expecting to grow to 500. They would build a church for 500, and then they would have the one 11 o'clock service. And a lot of churches don't do that anymore. 11 o'clock services are not common anymore. People have multiple services, and increasingly, they have multiple locations, that they have a church here and they have a church there. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is the obvious one. People don't feel like they can have any kind of intimate relationship with people in a megachurch. They walk into the cavern and they say, I'll never get to know anybody here, right? So there's a sense of a loss of intimacy. But there's also a sense of stewardship. The big buildings like that are poor, poor investments. If you think about our church campus right here, we have two buildings, three if you count the manse. We have, we have uh, uh, two floors here and one over there. And the one that is least well utilized is this one. We actually do some things downstairs. There's community groups and there's Bible studies and so forth that use our basement. And then over in the CE building, that's used all the time. It's, it's always being used. This, this part of the building is the, the worship center is the part we use the least. So it's not good stewardship to build a gigantic room that gets used for an hour a week. It's just not good, good way to, to spend your money. The other reason is, is the, um, is the intimacy. And if that's a problem for people of, of my age, people of a lot of your age. It's even more so for, for millennials. The, the research that the, Tom Rainer, uh, the head of Lifeway, says, he says, you will never see a Starbucks that seats 200 people. What you may see is a street corner where there's a Starbucks on each corner and each one seats 25. That millennials are even more than boomers and uh, Gen Xers are even more resistant to be part of that big, gigantic Organization. So he says, uh, think in terms of Starbucks, and that's really where the church is headed. So, um, so there's some things you don't have to worry about being in a megachurch. By the time we get there, they'll be old hat. So we're not going to go there. So, um, but I want to give you some things to consider about why you might want to be part of a larger church. The Barna Group, another one of these groups that studies churches, they they studied churches and they found that in nine out of nine belief areas that they they tested people. You know, would you agree or disagree with this statement? Um, in nine out of nine, large church attenders were more likely to give orthodox biblical responses. So, for example, did Jesus leave, live a sinless life? The, the orthodox biblical response to that question is yes. Jesus was like us in all respects, but without sin. That's literally right out of the Bible. So, and people are more likely in a larger church to say yes to that question. Is God all-knowing, all-powerful, the creator of the world? Does God still rule the universe? Questions like this people are more likely in larger churches to give the, the right answer, the orthodox biblical answer. Um, is salvation by grace alone? In other words, do you have to get saved by your own work, maybe along with Jesus's, or uh, is it something that you get handed as a gift by Jesus? And again, in large churches, people are more likely to give the orthodox uh, uh, answer. So, so for belief, but not just belief, also practice. In large churches, and this is by a significant, they call it a substantial uh, uh, range, it's 20% higher. Um, in seven out of eight behavioral measures, large church attenders were more likely to have been active. And the definition of active includes things like um, attended church in the last week, read the Bible in the last week, volunteered at church in the last week. 
They're also more involved civically. So, for example, one of the measures they did is, are you registered to vote? And people in large churches are more likely to be registered to vote. So there's a lot of things that may be surprising about large churches. Now, there is one interesting thing in a small church. Um, adults who are 35 or younger are more likely than older adults to attend small churches. So adults 35 and younger are actually more likely to be part of a small church. But when they have kids at home, they go to larger churches because they want programs. They want a Sunday school or whatever it is. Um, and again, we're not talking about individuals. We're talking about large numbers over the whole country. So uh, larger churches are more likely to have children, uh, people with children under 18 living at home. So um, there's some actual statistics. But, you know, statistics are kind of boring. I think the best reason of all is this. There's nobody on this planet that God doesn't love. Alaska consistently ranks at the very bottom of every metric of faith engagement. Uh, people, we, we range from 46 down to 50. Um, there are people in our neighborhoods. There are people at work. There are people in our schools. There's people all over the place who don't have any knowledge there's a God who loves them. In our zip code alone, just in the, the 99502 zip code, there are 20,000 people. And at most, if you work out the numbers, at most, about four to 5,000 of them go to church. Any kind, any kind of church, not just Christian churches, any kind of faith community at all. So what about those other 15,000? Where are they supposed to go? So I am unapologetically, if you wonder, what does Luke feel about, about church growth? I am unapologetically in favor of church growth because I know that of those 15,000 people who aren't in a church today, Jesus loves every one of them. So I am unapologetically in favor of church growth. But I realize that it comes at a cost, that there is growing pains associated with any kind of growth. So what I want to do now in the remaining time is look at a lesson from Scripture because, again, this is not the first time people have faced this. People have faced this many times in the past. So I want to look at a lesson from the book of Acts. And while you're finding it, um, just to kind of orient you, where we're at is um, the church has been growing. And at first, people were kind of indifferent to the church. Uh, they didn't really care. The, the the leaders of the church, they thought, this has all been a mistake. You never you didn't realize that Jesus was actually the Messiah, but he's risen from the grave, and now we can all, you know, we, we can all benefit from the knowledge that he's risen from the grave. But people didn't believe, and we're getting to the point now in the story where opposition is hardening. So instead of simply saying, oh, good, thank you for pointing that out to us, now we're going to become Jesus' disciples. Instead, they had them flogged, and they said, don't talk about Jesus anymore. Well, we see at the end of chapter four, chapter five, it says, every day in the temple, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus the Messiah. So they, they didn't stop, they didn't stop preaching even when they were told not to at risk of physical harm. And, and what I love, and, and we just don't have time to go there today, but what happened as a result of that? It says, during those days when the d- disciples were increasing in number, there's something that is, that is strange about the way that opposition to the church actually increases the size of the church. And that's happened just in our lifetimes, particularly in places where there's been repression, like in China. So um, we just have to put that to one side for now. But I want to look at what happens in chapter 6. It says, When the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So the Hellenists are people from all over the Mediterranean. They they spoke Greek as kind of a common language wherever they were from. Um, Everybody spoke Greek in those days um, who had traveled uh, around the Mediterranean. So, so they would speak Greek, 
and they're being overlooked or their widows are being overlooked by the Hebrews. The Hebrews are people who spoke Aramaic, the, the locals, the people from Jerusalem and Judea. They are being overlooked. And they say, they say, hey, our widows should get fed too. And the 12, the leaders of the church, they call together the whole community, the disciples, and they say, it's not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. They say, no, what we're doing is important. We cannot be distracted from the work we're doing, going over to the temple and getting beat up. We cannot be distracted by that, uh, from that, by this need. But what they don't say is that's not an important need. What they say is, you're right. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. That is a real problem. And then they say, you know what? We need to address this systematically. We cannot simply fix it once. We cannot simply have an all-hands fire drill where we go feed the widows. They said, we actually need to change our system. We need to, we need to create a committee. You know, imagine that, a church that created a committee. So they said, we need to approach this systematically. We need to quit thinking about this in terms of, are we going to do that or not? We just need to make it a habit that we do this regularly. So they say, pick for yourself, from among yourselves, from among this group, pick seven men, and they give some criteria. And then we will um, appoint them to this task. What they said pleased the whole community. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, of the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timar, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Nicholas isn't even a Jew. Forget speaking Hebrew. He isn't even a Jew. He kind of stopped halfway. He's a, he's a proselyte. He's done some of the things that it takes to become a Jew, but he hasn't done all the others. So uh, Nicholas is, is a Gentile still um, from Antioch. And so they had these men stand before the apostles and they prayed and they laid hands on them. So they said, they said, pick these men. And for whatever reason, he, Luke doesn't tell us, but for whatever reason, the people that they picked to do this are Greeks. So it's as if they said, you know what? We're not equipped to see the things going on in that part of our community. We just, we just have a blind spot. And the best way for us to deal with that is by putting you in charge of it. And I think, I think more than that, I think it says, we trust you. This is, this is, we trust you to take care of our widows too. We're not going to have separate organizations where, where the Hebrews take care of their widows and the Greeks take care of their widows. We're going to have one organization that takes care of everybody's widows. So they do that. They, they create this, but they put the Hellenists in charge of it. And what is the upshot? What is the upshot? It says, the word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. And interestingly, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the priests are not Hellenists. The priests aren't people whose widows are being overlooked. The priests are actually Hebrews. But when they see what the church does, when they see the way the church puts the system in place to take care of the widows, they say, for whatever reason, they say, I'm in. I... I have a theory of my own. It's worth what you paid for it. If, if you heard the passage from, from, um, uh, where's my bulletin? The passage we just heard. Where is my bulletin? How could I have lost it so soon? From Deuteronomy. Um, did you notice who, who is being included in the celebrations? We're actually in this time between these two. So the seven weeks, that's where we're at right now, if you're curious. Um, uh, begin to count the seven weeks. Keep a festival, rejoice before the Lord, you and your daughters, your male and female slaves, the Levites resident in your towns as well as the strangers. I'm saying, 
It's important that everybody get a chance to celebrate. So make sure you you provide for the needs of people who can't afford to celebrate themselves. Make sure they're included in the festivities. They say the widows and the orphans. But they also say the Levites. And the Levites are probably who these priests are. And I think the Levites are saying, yeah, they talk a good talk. You know, I'm almost convinced of everything they tell me about Jesus. But you know what? I don't see it in action. I don't see them living it out. And I think when they saw the church reorganize itself to carry out what it said it believed, people said, okay, all right, I'm convinced. You know, this is really what the church is about, right? We, we tell people the good news about Jesus, but if we don't demonstrate it in our lives, then people aren't going to believe it. And I think that's exactly what happens here. So the church reorganizes itself. It creates a committee. It creates a systematic solution to a problem to make sure it won't have that problem in the future. So that's, that's the lesson. Now the question is, what are the applications for us? Well, the applications and, um, the applications are first, that I think we need to be willing to embrace growth. I think that that is the normal and natural thing to happen to a church that is carrying out the mission that God's assigned it. So I think we have to embrace growth. And if you say, I don't want to be part of that, I urge you as your pastor to examine your motives because there's two reasons and one of them is not good. One of them is saying, basically, I got mine and I don't care about those 15,000 people outside the building, because that's not my problem. And if that's you, I think you really need to repent of that, and I think you need to work that out with Jesus. Now, if you're saying, but there's going to be problems, well, there are, and we see in the scriptures, we see that the church is equipped to address problems. So, how do we do that? Well, the first thing is to assume good faith on the part of the leaders. The Hellenists could have said, oh, it's just like those Hebrews, they're always like that, they don't care about us Hellenists. But they assume good faith and they work with them to build a solution to the problem. They also recognize that the leaders can't do everything. The, the leaders of the church say, look, we, yes, that's a good thing to do. We need to do that. We just can't do it ourselves. We're busy. We're getting beat up over at the temple every day. So they said, okay, well, I'm willing to be part of the solution. Okay, I'm willing to help work this out, work out this system that's going to replace this. I'm willing to serve in the nominating committee to nominate Nicholas and Prochorus and those other guys. I'm willing to be on this board. I'm willing to be Nicholas and Prochorus and the others. So assume that maybe you're going to be part of the solution. And we're going to talk about that more next week, so we'll see who comes back. But assume that maybe there's a role for you in this. But I think for the church, the church, what we collectively need to do is we need to ask ourselves, who are our widows? I don't mean actual widows. I mean, who are the people who are our effective widows? Who are the ones that we're not seeing because we're not Hellenists? I think the question we have to ask as a church is, how can we engage our Hellenists to help us see our widows? Now, I don't know who our widows are, right? It's the nature of a Hebrew is you don't know who the Hellenist widows are. But I am struck by a line I read in this uh, this book here. He says this. He says, I've talked with many church leaders who want to reach unchurched people, but they can't understand why unchurched people don't like their church. They're stumped until I ask them one last question. Do the teens in your church love your services and want to invite your friends? Don't look at any of our teens. This is not fair to them. 
okay, to put it on them. But I think that's a real important question. If the teens in our church love our services and want to invite their friends, that tells us we're doing something right to invite unchurched people to our church. It says, as soon as I asked that question, the leader's expression would inevitably change. He or she would look down at the floor and say no. He says, here's what I believe. If teens find your main services, the ones you run on Sunday morning, boring, irrelevant, and disengaging, so will unchurched people. So I wonder if maybe the teens in our church are actually our Hellenists, and we need to talk to them about who are our widows. So I think we as a church need to ask ourselves, who are our widows? And the way we get at that is, first of all, we figure out who are our Hellenists. I'm going to close now, believe it or not. But I want to tell you this. This is the happy story in Acts. Okay, it actually gets worse. This is an island of happiness. This is the good point, right? We began, the disciples are getting flogged. And starting at the end of this chapter and all through chapter 7, a great persecution goes out against the church. This is a high point, And we need to pay close attention to what the church does. They don't say, we've grown enough, tough, too bad, good luck for you. They say, we've grown and it's come with a cost. And we need to make some adjustments if we're going to move forward. And they do. And then they are equipped for the things that God is calling them to do in the future. So let's be that kind of church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the church. We give thanks for the the way you have called us to be part of it. And Lord, we pray you would open our eyes so that we could see who our Hellenists are and who our widows are and reach out to them to show that what we're talking about is not just talk, but it actually is something that has changed our hearts. We pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.